chapter 2 this evening, Matthew chapter 2, and I want us to look there, beginning at the very first of the chapter, verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Why did they call it his star? How did they know of a star? What was the star? Was it a star at all? When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophets, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not thou the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, And when you have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. That was a lie, and he knew it, and they knew it as well. He had no intention of worshiping this child. When they heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. As you study the Gospel of Matthew, you find that his thrust is to present Christ as the King of the Jews, the Messiah. In chapter 1, he gives Jesus' credentials through his royal genealogy to David on Joseph's side. And as we've mentioned last week, Luke gives the genealogy his credentials on Mary's side. Here in our text, Matthew gives another important attestation of Christ's being the king, as the promised, being the promised king, because of the visit of the Magi. Now, this is a notable event, much more than just a children's play at Christmas time. This is one of the most notable things of the whole Christmas narrative. This is a credential that this baby born is not just another baby. This is a remarkable thing. Then he will give Herod's reaction to the Magi's visit as another credential, another proof of Christ being royalty. Herod's hatred and his ensuing decree that all the babies born, he inquired diligently what exact time they saw the appearance of this star or this whatever it was. And he calculated and every baby born within a two-year period of time was mercilessly murdered by Herod worrying possibly that the Messiah had been born. His reaction gives testimony to the credentials of Jesus Christ as being 
the Messiah, the King of the Jews. By the way, Herod sat on his throne claiming to be the King of the Jews himself, only because the Roman government allowed him to be there, appointed him, and allowed him to be on his throne. His was not an inherited throne. He had no line, no right to the throne except politically. Uh, He was allowed to be there by the government in Rome. Interestingly, Herod was not a Jew at all. He was a Gentile. And it's interesting that he would be called the king of the Jews and he's not a Jew. He was an Edomite and had no legal claim to the throne in the least. Another proof of Jesus' credentials are the the fulfilled prophecies that we'll mention and see here surrounding his birth and his coming to earth. The prophet said that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, very specifically. And when the Magi came, they knew exactly when they asked of the scribes and, and so on. Herod, claiming to be the king of the Jews, didn't know this information. He knew little of the scripture at all, although there were prophecies concerning Messiah. He knew that. But he had to call the wise men and inquired of them diligently. Uh, uh, And he inquired of his scribes and and spiritual leaders in Israel to find out where Messiah would come from. No doubt this event takes place some months after Jesus' birth. In verse 11, we learn that the family of chapter, uh, in this uh, same chapter, uh, are living in a house. Joseph and Mary are living in a house, not in a cattle shed where Jesus was born. So they've made a move uh, to a more uh, permanent residence while they are in exile. This takes place after they presented him for dedication in the temple. And Simeon gave his prophecy. And Anna was saw in answer to prayer that the Messiah... And we know that this visit of the Magi must have been after his dedication because of the gift that they bring at the presentation. Remember, they brought two turtle doves, the the least of the offerings that was required at the birth of a male baby. Had the gifts of the Magi already been brought, we were certain that Mary and Joseph would have brought a lamb, a more expensive, more suitable uh, gift at the dedication of Jesus, being who they were and having the heart's desire to give their best to the Lord. And so this took place sometime after that event. They, uh, them having brought the least expensive uh, sacrifice. Bethlehem is six miles south of Jerusalem in the hill country of Judea. It is an ancient city. It is on an ancient highway between Jerusalem and Egypt. And it's no wonder they fled that way. It was on the way to Egypt. And it was a trade route. Its ancient name was Ephrata. And in Micah's prophecy, he says Bethlehem of Ephrata. And that is the ancient name. We see that in Genesis 36, Ruth chapter 4, Psalm 132, and of course Micah's prophecy in Micah 5 verse 2. After Joshua led the children of Israel to conquer Canaan, the name of Ephrata was changed to Bethlehem, meaning the house of bread. And this is where Jacob buried, buries his beloved Rachel and where Ruth met her kinsman redeemer, Boaz, and where their grandson, the future king David, tended his father's sheep. It's a notable town, city, in the history of God's people. After his illustrious reign, Bethlehem was called and referred to continually as the city of David. 
Micah specified very clearly that Bethlehem would be the, the king, the birthplace of the king of Israel would come from Bethlehem. But the fact that Herod was called the Great is, a, is an amazing thing. It's quite a mystery that, that history would refer to him as Great. Perhaps a better name would have been Herod the Cruel or Herod the Infamous, where he was anything but great. Julius Caesar had appointed his father, Herod Antipas, as procurator or governor of, over Judea. And, his, and in, uh, in turn, he placed his son over Galilee. And Herod put down in his reign several of the Jewish uprisings. There was continually throughout this time uprisings, insurrections. The Jews hated Roman control over them. And there would be these renegade groups from time to time. And they would cause quite a skirmish, not unlike the terrorist attacks that we hear about. And uh, while there was no chance of them having a widespread overthrow of the Roman government, they did cause wreak havoc. And it took a strong hand to keep them in check. And Herod was the man for the job. In 40 BC, Herod was declared by Octavian and Antony, along with the Roman Senate's approval, as they gave him the title, the King of the Jews, over all the area of Palestine. He invaded Palestine and drove out the Parthians and finally established and firmly established his kingdom. Since he was not Jewish, uh, we might say that Herod was great in a way of being a political great mind. He knew how to get things done and how to make himself esteemed, although it was a love-hate relationship. And certainly the Jews did not have anything for him at all. But to, since he was an Edomite and was not a Jew himself, he married a Jewess. Her name was Mary Amni. And uh, she, she was of the, uh, the uh, ironic of the priesthood. Her family was of the priesthood. And to try to have more pull with the Jews, he made this marriage. She was a beautiful woman. And he was the consummate politician delivering lavish tax money to Rome. Of course, Rome liked that, and Herod secured his place by all these things that he did. He built roads, he built theaters, he built uh, uh, racetracks, things that people like and want, dome stadiums, things like that, you know, that people, to please the people. And so he, he feathered his cap in that way. But his crowning work was begun in 19 B.C., and in fact, the temple in Jesus' day was referred to as Herod's temple because he, uh, to try to impress the Jews, he enlarged it, he refurbished it, reconstructed the whole temple area, and uh, to much, changed it much from what it had looked like in Solomon's time. He built the highly and, and tightly fortified fortress Masada that's well known in history. He was also one of the most cruel kings to ever rule. He was paranoid even before he heard of Jesus' birth. And any time he felt endangered or threatened in any way, he would kill whoever it was that he was suspicious of. He killed his wife's brother, Aristobulus, the high priest. He had him drowned. And then he put on a lavish state funeral and cried buckets of tears to act like he was mourning the death of the brother-in-law that he killed. He killed his wife, Mary Amney and his wife's mother, and two of his own sons. Just before he died, he killed his third son. What kind of father kills his own sons? He was afraid they would take his throne. Herod died a, about a year after Jesus was born, and after he'd wreaked the havoc of having the babies 
murder that had been born during that window of time. He knew that no one would mourn his death because by this time there was such a bloody trail of people that he had killed. So he had a royal decree arresting all the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem. He had them imprisoned, and he instructed at the moment of his death that all of these distinguished Jewish citizens should be executed so to be sure they would be mourning in Israel at the time of his death. Of course, it wasn't for him, but in his warped mind, that's how he dealt with things. It's no wonder that after the visit of the wise men, and after we just see this little brief overview of Herod, that he would have the mindset to figure out a two-year span of time and have all the babies in that area that were born in that time in Bethlehem murdered. All we know about the Magi or the wise men that the Scripture tells us here, the wise men, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. All that we know of them from the scripture is given here in the biblical record of Matthew's account. Again, remember Matthew is his effort, his goal in his gospel, other than being inspired of the Holy Spirit to write it, is to present Jesus as Messiah, as King. So he gives all the kingly credentials and trappings that would point to that. We don't know how many there were. We, because of the favorite Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient are, the three comes not from the scripture, but from the three gifts mentioned here. But that in no way tells us there were just three men. And as we've studied in times past, there were probably a much larger delegation than three. And with all their lavish entourage, it was quite a crowd that entered, invaded Jerusalem going around the city asking about the birth of a king. We don't know how they traveled to Palestine or exactly what country they came from. But when you study history, you do find out something about these magi. We're told they came from the east in the scripture here because in that day the magi were from the priestly class of the Parthians east of Palestine. And so they would have come from that direction. These magi were astronomers and astrologers, and they observed a sacrificial system, interestingly, very similar to that under the law of Moses. Some historians believe that they had descended through Noah's son, Shem, and that they practiced, we know, many occultic ceremonies, even sorcery. They interpreted dreams, all of that mixed together. And, of course, we get the word magic and magician from their name, the Magi. They used fire in their worship. They had an eternal flame that burned on their altar, which they said had come down from heaven. They were monotheistic, interestingly, and were linked with the Persian religious leader Zoroaster, which became the primary religion of Persia. They were scholars. They were experts. They were men of renown. They were men of math and science and farming and history, expert in all these areas, and the occult and became the most admired and powerful group of advisors in the Persian and later the Babylonian empires. They too were called wise men. Some say that the famous the phrase you, you see in the scriptures and in history, the law of the Medes and the Persians, was developed from the teachings of these magi. Historians say that no Persian ever became king without their stamp of approval and learning of their ways. They became what some might would call, refer to as king makers because they wielded such power in Persia and later Babylon. 
In fact, the chief Babylonian magi uh, was with uh, Nebuchadnezzar when he conquered Judah, according to Jeremiah 39 and verse 3, the, the head of the magi. They were among the, the highest ranking officials of the political uh, group of Daniel's day. And that's why when Daniel uh, could interpret the king's dreams when they could not, they were highly esteemed Daniel. And he arose to, to the zenith of power uh, in the, the, the Persian and later Babylonian empires. And it was not the, the Magi, this group of priestly astronomers, who became jealous of Daniel. They admired him. Daniel's the plotting and intrigue against Daniel was from other uh, political, jealous political officials, and it was not from the Magi. He became almost accepted among them. And many Bible scholars think that it was Daniel's influence, and we cannot overly emphasize or read into the Scripture what's not there. We do know Daniel was there, right? The Scripture tells us, and that he interpreted dreams. The Magi were the leading religious group and political people of that day. And I cannot help but believe because of godly Daniel's testimony. He fearlessly prayed. He let his faith be known. He was not ashamed of it. When he began to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, could it be that he instructed the Magi in the teachings and the prophecies of Judaism? They knew, these, these wise men knew somehow of the, the coming of a Messiah and king. And let's face it, people, nobody would make that kind of trip at that expense if they were not convinced that what they were doing was legitimate. No one goes on that kind of journey at that, in that time with, without some keen reason to do so. And I think Daniel, in my own feeling, is this. While we cannot be dogmatic, there was actually a believing group of saved magi who, influenced by Daniel's testimony, kept the teachings that Daniel gave them alive and that there perhaps was a, a remnant of them down through time. Now, we, we can't know that except just by surmising. And I, I, I think that that may be the case. The magi who came when Jesus was born had been greatly influenced by Judaism. They knew things that, that Herod didn't know, you know, and that, that influenced by Daniel and the other Hebrew children who were taken into and became the, the favored. And, you know, the, the, the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Babylonians would take the brightest and the best and try to indoctrinate them and brainwash them and infiltrate them and use them uh, to, to, in their own nation in various ways. These seemed to be God-fearing Gentiles. And because there was a strong group of these at the time of, of Jesus' birth... And when they came to Jerusalem, the, the way they questioned, it, it, the way the Greek puts their questioning here, when it says they, uh, in verse 2, saying, where is he that is born the king of the Jews? In the Greek construction, it is that they went from place to place throughout the city, just curiously asking questions and interviewing in a very uh, intense way. They were so convinced that what they saw coupled with what they had been taught and handed down through the ages, that this was exactly the case and that the Messiah had come. Again, the fact that they came all that way and brought such lavish and expensive gifts 
and were so uh, adamant about it, it proves that they were absolutely convinced. I think that people say, well, how did they even find out at this particular time? I think that God appeared to them sovereignly as he appeared to Abraham in the Ur of Chaldees. When God appears and lets his ways be known, it is so convincing that people will do anything on earth. And we see that not only in these cases, but the conversion of Paul and all down through history. God's revelation of himself is without equal. And uh, however he did it, how if, the, if he came in, in some angelic way or whatever it was, uh, it was powerful and they were absolutely convinced of it, as Abraham was and others were. No doubt when they began to question, can you imagine coming into the city, the capital city of the Jews, with this fabulous temple, the most renowned scholars of the day, the scribes, the copiers of the law, the priestly family, the high priest, all of it, and nobody had a clue. Don't you know how shocked these magi were as they began to interview and interrogate, and nobody knew what they were talking about? I bet they were absolutely shocked. And we see that God sovereignly shows himself to, to people, and they, they had so graciously and amazingly received this truth, they couldn't believe that nobody else knew what they were talking about. Oh, they knew the prophecies. They knew that the Messiah should come, but that anything was going on now was absolute mystery to them. There were prophetic prophecies and beliefs among the Jews and the Romans. In fact, Julius Caesar was considered the, the, the deliverer. And they, um, the Roman uh, mindset, he was God, and he was the God that was looked for. And among, among the Jews, there were prophecies that Messiah was about to come. Throughout that world at that time, there were expectations of a deliverer and world ruler. And so we do not know how God revealed to these magi that the Messiah had been born, but he did. He is a God of revelation, isn't he? He revealed himself to Abraham, as we've mentioned, and to Isaac, and to, to Jacob, and to Moses, and to Elijah, and Daniel, and others in very specific and real ways. We know that he gave them his sign. The Bible tells us here what it was a star in the east. Now, we do not know what the star was. Some say I've read that people say it was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn that happens ever so many thousands of years. It's a phenomenon. Some say it was a, a meteor that, that fell or a comet or some other thing, but all of that is unlikely. It always bothers me, as when Hollywood tries to do, when do they come to these miracles, they try to explain them away, the crossing of the Red Sea, the, the, the star here. And we must not um, shirk the, the, the fact that it's a mir miracle. It's a mysterious miracle. And uh, we could give some surmisings about what it was. But to say it was a meteor or some other thing, God could, could create a brand new star if he wanted to, unlike any other star in the heavens, just for this occasion. But I think that there's a much more biblical explanation of what the star was. I think that it was the Shekinah glory presence of God that led and guided the Old Testament, uh, the Jews, out of, out of Egypt. And for 40 years, it told them where to go and how to camp there, how long to stay. And when the, the presence of God lifted and moved, they followed. The Bible tells us in Exodus thirteen twenty one, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It would have appeared, for lack of better words, to be a star or a light in the sky. 
Moses on the mount receiving the law, the, the Bible tells us that he, his eye, when he appeared to the sons of, of Israel, he assumed, appeared like a consuming fire on the mountainside. In Exodus uh, 24, verse 17, in other words, the glory of the Lord was as a consuming fire. And when Moses came down, he glowed, literally glowed in the light of his glory. I think it was an amazing, unusual phenomenon in uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 30, though real, invisible. Sometimes the scripture uses common language to describe to us what is unexplainable and uh, so that we can have at least some kind of idea of what something is. And Jesus' transfiguration, how did he appear before his disciples? He was transfigured before them, and the Bible says his face shone like the sun. That's bright, isn't it? And his garments became white as light. What an amazing phenomenon that was. In Revelation, when John describes the glorified Christ, he saw Jesus' face, it was like the sun shining in its strength. Well, when is the sun in its strength? At high noon, full-orbed. You can't look in the sun, and that's how Jesus' face was described. He said that the, the new Jerusalem would have no need of a, a literal sun or a moon because the glory of God would be so great that the Lamb is the light in eternity. Numbers 24, verse 17, though, is the prophecy that Daniel gave, the, obviously, the Magi, or had been given to them by the Jews down through the years. And amazingly, when you study this story, uh, it, this, this prophecy comes not from a reputable prophet. We would like, you know, humanly speaking, things to be done maybe a little different way, but it's Balaam of all people that the Lord allows to give the prophecy of the star. And Balaam tells us this. In his prophecy, again, the word was given by the Lord in his own sovereign way. He can choose whomever and whatever to use for his glory. The Bible, this is how they linked, the Magi linked the star with the Messiah. Numbers twenty four seventeen. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh or near. In other words, this presence would be from a distance. There shall be, come a star out of Jacob, out of Israel, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That was their verse. And they held to it. And when there came uh, evidence of it in a miraculous way from the Lord, they knew that this sight that they saw and the word that came to them, that Messiah had come. In Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus calls himself, his own description of himself is the bright and morning star. It is most surely was the very glory of God that led the Magi to Israel and right over Bethlehem. They saw it in the east. And when you read the record here, and you can go back and read it, they saw the star and they went east. It's not that it led them all the way to, to uh, uh, Bethlehem. They saw it in the east, in the land of the Jews. They went to the capital city. Why? Because they thought, well, surely where the temple is and the high priest and the king, they will have heard about the Messiah coming. And then, of course, at that point, the, the, the sign reappeared and led them directly every step to, to Bethlehem, right over the spot, the house, where Jesus was with Mary and Joseph. God gets his news out his own way, doesn't he? He's his own press agent, and he does a good job of it. Whether he uses angels or stars or Balaam or animals, or he said the very rocks would cry out and testify if he wanted them to. 
So please don't play down the miracles in the scriptures. They're what they are. When God says something, it happened. And uh, we don't have to help God out by creating a comet or a falling star or something else. And the scripture is very clear that it was something, a phenomenon, something unlike anything else that they'd ever seen. God's glory shone like a, uh, the biggest and brightest star ever, and it guided them. This was a manifestation of the Son of God that will be seen once again in time to come. We're not finished with this phenomenon because the Bible tells us in Matthew 24, verse 29, our Lord says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun, S-U-N, be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven. A horrible, uh, fearful time that is described. And the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Remember, a sign. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and glory. When he comes back, the the skies will be ablaze with light. Of the very glory and the holiness of God. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And then in the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, the Bible says in Revelation 1, verse 7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, which saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. This presence of the Lord, the Shekinah glory presence of the Lord will again reappear to bring in the eternal day. Well, this Shekinah glory cloud, as you remember, stood over the tabernacle, didn't it? This temporary uh, building where the, the Lord met with his people all throughout the wilderness. And just as the pillar of cloud gave the light to the Israel, but darkness to Egypt. And by the way, it restrained the Egyptian soldiers from only, could only come so far. There were thousands and thousands of Jews who left uh, Egypt. And uh, they were not all fit uh, soldiers. <laughs> they were all from all walks of life, every age. And so that, kind of, that amount of people does not move fast. And they were dragging and taking stuff with them. So please don't let Hollywood picture and color what you know that the Scripture teaches. The Lord put this barrier between Pharaoh's forces and the children of Israel to allow them to cross over on dry ground. The Scripture is very clear that the Red Sea was dry. It was not some low tide, some phenomenon like that. The Bible says he absolutely parted the waters. And it made a big enough path for all the thousands and thousands of these people, Jews who had been in Egypt, to walk across and to carry their stuff with them and their livestock. And remember, they had taken from the Egyptians treasures. They took gold and silver, asked it of them, and they gave it to them, didn't they? And they were going to use that to build the tabernacle later. And then this presence of the Lord either the Shekinah glory or an invisible wall kept them at bay and allowed the last one to get across on the other side before it was the restraining hand of God was moved and then Pharaoh's forces moved in. The scripture tells us, we hold to the scriptures, the power and the might and the miracles of our Lord. 
the Magi were not following the star, it's clear that the fact that they had to inquire about where Jesus was born. They saw this phenomenon, this presence over in the east. They went that direction. And they, and they knew the, the prophecies. They came to the capital city, and they said, where is he? Where is he? And when they did their research, and the scribes and the Pharisees told them exactly where he would be, they saw his star in the east. There's, there's, then they went to Jerusalem, and there from Jerusalem, the, the presence again guided them to, the, to Bethlehem and to the exact spot where the child was. Verse 9 tells us that, doesn't it? When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. The word worship, they said they came and worshipped him, is a word full of meaning. It means, as the scripture tells us here, falling down prostrate on your face, kissing the feet or the garment of the one being worshipped. The truth tells us that they were true seekers of God, weren't they? These men were convinced that Jesus, even the baby Jesus, which how many grown men of renown and high intellect and these astronomers and mathematicians and wealthy, wealthy men, the highest esteemed men of their nation, their, their people, would have come and, and put them on their faces before a baby, the most helpless, uh, least considered thing in any of those cultures of that day. Babies were not highly esteemed. And these men are worshiping a baby. They're convinced, despite their background, their paganism, their superstition, uh, they recognized tr- God's truth when they saw it. And they had been seeking it. And the Bible is very clear. They that seek me, will find me. They had genuinely seeking hearts. And the message I would give to those tonight who may be listening and may not be convinced of these things, seek the Lord. Search his word to see if these things be. Ask the Lord to give you a revelation of himself. I will tell you he's already given it in this book and he'll not give you any more than it's recorded in this book. This is the, the boundaries of his revelation to us. He has spoken. It is sealed. And every Jesus Christ himself said about himself, every part of this, the least part, will not fall or go, fall by the wayside till every part of it be fulfilled. Seek him. Let me ask you, have you asked the Lord, is this truth? Would you show me, would you convince me uh, the truth of yourself? You pray that prayer. You ask the Lord to show you his glory, to show you his truth, his way of salvation. These men lived up to what light they had, what verses they knew. And they followed them, didn't they? They researched it. Shouldn't you and I, something is as important as the eternal truth of what we're talking about here, either this is the Messiah or it's not. It's not a way or maybe. The Bible claims and proclaims with all assurity that this is the Messiah. Should you dismiss that without careful scrutiny? What thinking person would you say, well, I don't believe all those things? We have a record of these men who took great wealth and great effort and time and resources to seek it out. You could at least read this book and pray over it and ask the God, if you're there, would you show me? Would you convince me? I want to know. And if you come with a seeking heart, he will show you his truth. They sought him, and the Lord promises to bless those. In Jeremiah 29, verse 13, all they that seek me will find me. 
Oh, the blessings and the glory of the Christmas story. May the Lord bless his word.